Everyone who is thirsty, come to the water and drink. Even those who have no money, come and eat. Let the wicked return home and be embraced by God's steadfast love. What a fine invitation. Who would not accept that invitation? Thirst and hunger, they're such basic human experiences. They transcend all divides of place, time, culture, generation. Everybody needs water. Everyone needs to eat. In this regard, human beings are not so different from animals, are they? We're not even really that different from the plants that require soil, water, and sunlight if they're to bear a harvest of beauty or of produce. Of course we'll say yes to this invitation. We know that without water and food, we will perish. And short of actual death, none of us functions very well without adequate hydration and nourishment. No doubt you've experienced that late afternoon fading of your attention when your blood sugar is low and nothing you read gets past your eyes into your comprehension. Perhaps you've pushed yourself on a long run or just neglected to drink enough water on a hot day and you felt that faintness of dehydration. We know that thirst and hunger are signals that we need to tend to our body's fundamental needs. Moreover, we can easily understand that thirst and hunger are metaphors for other human needs, basic ones. When the January rain comes, like it clearly has, Southern California's hills turn verdant and the desert blooms. But human beings, we need more than soil, light, and water if we're to flourish. Standing in front of an open refrigerator, eating a bit of this and a bit of that off the shelf may provide the day's calories. And perhaps if we're lucky, we'll even get the proper nutrition. But that sort of eating really doesn't satisfy us. We long for food carefully prepared, attractively served, shared with friends. We want the conversation, the laughter, the sense of belonging that comes with a fine meal. We crave these good things because, well, they enrich our living and they give us pleasure. Beyond feeding our bodies, the meal and the friendships feed our spirits. Similarly, a college community encourages its members' growth in body, mind, and spirit. As I've anticipated my return to this campus, I've been recalling some of the ways that I was encouraged to grow when I was a student here. In classes, I certainly encountered new information and challenging ideas that guided me toward my subsequent study of history and religion. Indeed, I found that I have surprisingly vivid memories of reading specific books and of study sessions with my roommate and classmates. As influential as any one book or a particular subject, however, was the encouragement that my teachers and classmates gave me to be curious and to pursue knowledge. Now, I have to admit that my first year here I was a really pitiful student in the Greek class taught by a philosopher. Nevertheless, I enrolled in another one of his classes the next year, and I found out that I was more suited to discussions of the philosophy of religion than to memorizing paradigms. And while I don't remember the topic he had assigned or the idea he was explaining, 
I do remember the look of pride on that teacher's face the day I burst out at him. Could you please let me finish before you tell me that I'm wrong? (laughs) And he did. And by doing so, he encouraged me to think carefully, to articulate my ideas with precision. He also gave me a really good example of how to make room for learning as well as teaching in the classroom. Now I was, I was, a hyper-responsible eldest child, so being an RA in the dorm seemed like an obvious job for me. (laughs) Not surprisingly, it stretched me in ways I had not anticipated. For example, my natural bluntness needed a dose of diplomacy. My self-confident sense that I knew what was right needed to be balanced by a measure of humility. My tendency to make quick decisions needed to be slowed by considered judgment, and my serious propensity for making lists that conferred an illusion of control had to submit to a lot of good-natured teasing. I wish I could say that these are lessons I mastered in college, (laughs) rather than ones I'm still learning, as my teenage son would be happy to tell you. And then, along with a store of religious knowledge that I had accumulated through years of Sunday school and Bible camp, I also brought to college with me my family's regular practice of church attendance. In fact, for some months, a friend and I went to Sunday worship both at a local congregation and on campus. We had to learn how to hear Jerry Swanson's poetic preaching. Perhaps there was something in his style that was unfamiliar and off-putting. It, I mean, who had ever seen a pastor who wore earth shoes? Or who ignited the altar candles with a disposable Bic lighter? Or who did needlepoint during church council meetings? Frankly, I, I can't, I've sort of forgotten what the difficulty was because once I could hear him, once I could hear him, The message was so clear and so appealing. It both, at the same time, it both complicated faith and made it so very simple. Open hands that hold but do not grasp grace. This is the paradoxical, expansive image of faith that grew in me during my years at Cal Lutheran. And Jerry probably wasn't the only one who watered it, though I'm pretty sure he's the one who articulated it that way. Now, as I've been reading this morning's lesson, I I could imagine it's those same open hands that scoop up the water Isaiah offers on God's behalf. I can see those same open hands receiving food purchased without money. And yet, at the same time, I know that a hungry person, one parched with thirst, would be tempted to grab the water pitcher and snatch the food. These basic needs, they can strip away the veneer of good manners, exposing selfishness or self-importance, impatience or greed, perhaps just desperation and fear or, or unwillingness to admit that we need God. The parallelism of the prophet's poetry leads me to think 
that the thirst and hunger that start the passage are not just for water and food. The parallelism draws us along. First, we recognize our thirst. Then we admit our hunger, our lack of money, our fear of losing status, until finally, we're face to face with our own deep need for God's mercy. The text for today points to wickedness and evil doing, and none of us are that. But the parallelism of the poetry leads me to suggest that our thirst and hunger for God's steadfast love spring from such ordinary human experiences that we may be willing to admit, from our lack of courage or fear of failure, from our weariness in doing good, or from the exhaustion that follows over-reliance on our own strength. Hear the good news. Even before we can call out, God offers pardon and mercy, living water and the bread of life. Isaiah assures us that God's steadfast love is in abundant supply. There's no need to snatch it or grasp it tightly. Flowing freely as a river, falling like the winter rain, God's mercy carries us, carries us past our need, past our desire, past our fear. God's love alleviates our thirst, eases our hungers, and we flourish. God invites us to a meal, to a banquet of rich bread and fine wine that satisfies our longings and makes us whole. This is an invitation we cannot refuse.